Well, he didn't think he could make it. He didn't think he had much time left. Of course, I'm talking about 29-year-old tugboat cook Harrison O'Keen. O'Keen was a Nigerian tugboat uh, uh, crewman working off the coast of West Africa on May 26th of this year when heavy seas swelled so badly that the tugboat he was on capsized. Apparently, the boat had been actually stabilizing an oil tanker parked beside a Chevron platform off the coast of West Africa when the tugboat was flooded with water, and it began to sink, and it ultimately sank 100 feet below the waterline. The 12 people on board the boat, 10 were killed. One went missing. But then there was Harrison O'Keen. As the ship sank, O'Keen found himself stuck in one of the boat's bedrooms, uh, coupled with a, a bathroom. And as the boat settled on the bottom, O'Keen found a four-foot air bubble in those rooms. He was able to breathe as a result. O'Keen reports that the water was freezing, the room was pitch black, and yet he managed to live in that little space for almost two and a half days. Um, O'Keen admitted during that time that he was hungry and thirsty, and while he just sat in salt water, his skin actually peeled off from the erosion of the water. Still, during that time, every moment he thought it was any minute he was going to die. The water would eventually fill that room. There was no way the air bubble would stay, and he was just waiting until May 28th. Uh, On May 28th, O'Keen heard a sound. It was divers sent by Chevron who were banging on the hull as they searched for crew members to recover bodies. O'Keen found a water dispenser uh, in the room he was in, and he banged on the side of the hull and made as much loud, loud noises as he could. Divers apparently broke into the ship and started searching inside for the bodies and... In kind of a comical moment, O'Keen saw a light from the divers, dove under the water, underwater holding his breath. He tapped on the back of one of the of the uh, of the divers. The diver turned around. He said, "Hi." (laughs) Of course, the diver was utterly shocked at the sight of this man after two and a half days. And so, the diving uh, the divers pulled him out of the of the wreckage and brought him to the surface where he endured 60 hours of decompression. Harrison O'Keen did not think that he would make it. He really did. But somewhere along the way, his rescuers came and pulled him out. And as O'Keen himself says, I, I don't know what stopped the water from filling that room. I called on God. He did it. It was a miracle. Trapped in a situation where he couldn't save himself, yet escaping at the hands of a rescuer. Guys, that's a great word picture to describe our lives as Christians. Describe our state as sinners under the water, drowned, effectively drowned until Christ rescues us from sin, Satan, and the world. And we celebrate. We celebrate that God saves us as believers, and yet even living the Christian life sometimes leaves us in a place where we start to think, hey, am I back underwater again? 
Am I still feeling the pressure of sin, Satan, and the world? Well, in Second Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is writing to this group of Christians who felt stuck in the water, who felt like they had no place to go. The Christians of Asia Minor were trying to live the Christian life, but they were getting major pressure to conform to the world's ways. And the scary situation of persecution, even in their own families and lives, left them longing for relief, even if it meant compromise. So that leaves us with a question today. When you feel underwater, when you feel trapped, when you feel like the world's pressing in, calling you to conformity, how are we supposed to live under that pressure? How are we supposed to respond? And what if we don't respond in the way that God prescribes for us, even in his word. Now, let me give you a little reminder that Peter's been talking about this all along throughout the book of Second Peter, especially chapter 1. He's been talking at length about how to live this life, even under pressure. And he starts out our whole thing in verse 3 of our, of our chapter, talking about how God had blessed us with all things, even the promises of God in Scripture, so that we might be partakers of the divine nature. That's another way to say we might actually reflect the glory of God and look Christ-like, godly, in how we live, even how we love in our lives. That's what P- Peter is calling the people to. But the implication comes in verses 5-7 through seven when he addresses a question that would arise among anyone. How? How do you live this way under pressure? I mean, what do you do in order to be a partaker? And so Peter gives us what is the closest thing to a spiritual how-to with the golden chain of Christian growth found in verses 5 through 7 of our text. In fact, look at this chain with me. It's a really powerful thing. It says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, Virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And Peter goes on to talk about how these are qualities that every Christian should pursue. Now, as we've said in the last week or so, these qualities that he's talking about here are not the normal qualities we pursue when we're under pressure. No, we pursue things under pressure like relief. Now, comfort now, control, let me take charge. Peter says, go a different way. Start with faith in Christ. And here's why you want to start there. Because Jesus himself exhibited these very same qualities. Christ himself lived out this life of of really the divine nature under pressure in his hardest moments. Peter's saying, dare to walk a different road, a narrow road, the road less traveled, because this is where you're going to find life under pressure. So he's calling us to follow Jesus, the Jesus who lived out these very qualities in his life. And at this point, the skeptic in every Christian, even not just the non-Christian, but even every Christian would say, why? Why would I go through this stuff that doesn't come naturally, but is really significant stuff? Why would I bother to go that road rather than the road of detaching, 
comfort, control. And Peter answers really very straightforward ways. Here in verse 9, look at what he says. He says, For whoever lacks these qualities, that is, doesn't develop them in their lives, is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he is cleansed from his former sins. Now, last week we talked about one bad result of not living in these qualities, in this golden chain of Christian growth. And one of those is you're not effective as a, as a Christian. You're not a, effective in godliness and living for Christ. But here he makes a real clear claim on what the real problem is with this, is that in verse 9 he ups the ante saying, you're in a bad place of nearsightedness, even blindness. You know what the Greek word here for nearsightedness is? Myopos. It's where we get the word myopia, which is another word for nearsightedness. In other words, when you're nearsighted, you only see that which is right up in your face, what immediately hits you in your circumstances of life. That's all you're uh, thinking about and responding to. That's nearsightedness. But he says it goes even further. The nearsightedness when you're not living in these Christian virtues, in this kind of life, goes to even blindness where you don't see it all. Now, you've got to ask a question at this point. Who is he talking about? I mean, he's talking about nearsightedness and blindness to a bunch of Christians in the Asia Minor Church. Well, there's two folks he's talking about in this very text who don't practice these particular uh, um, qualities under pressure. And, and it, the first would be the backsliding Christian. Yeah, we talk about backsliding in the Reformed Church. And two, the almost Christian. The almost Christian. The first case is the backsliding Christian. Now, here's what the backsliding Christian looked like in the first century. See if you understand this. Many of the first century Christians would hear the gospel and they'd start following Jesus. They'd be very excited about it. Finally, I'm forgiven. Finally, I'm loved by a God who doesn't demand my performance in order to make him happy. He performed for me in Christ. I celebrate that. They get excited. As a result, their life starts to change in how they follow Jesus. They start doing some of the things Jesus said. They start being wholly different. And the result would be that as they built momentum in their lives, they get pushback. They get resistance. Family, even culture, people at work would say, you know, your way of living, the way you understand life, is intolerant. In fact, you're a hater, man. That's what they would get. And after weeks, months, years of this kind of resistance, the Christians would get tired. They'd grow weary of the fight. They'd have battle fatigue, if you will, in their spiritual warfare. And so as a result, they would back off of their lifestyle. They would become less effective. And they would escape into what I call the trivial life, the life of doing little things that have little results but don't cause as much trouble in life. That's what they would do. Now, Peter is saying, don't be the nearsighted Christian who lives for the comfort of now. Get an eternal view. Look down the road about where this is going, this life you have, even the way others live. Look at where it's going in the long long road with an eternal view in mind. There's a second case that he's also addressing here, which is even worse. Even I dare say eternally worse. 
It is the almost Christian he is addressing. The almost Christian who is actually spiritually blind. This word used for blindness here in our text is also used to describe the Pharisees, the religious people who pressed upon all others a bunch of rules in their time. And they, the Pharisees, that is, were religious pretenders who said and did a lot for God, but really in many cases lived a double life. You know, there is a a way to interpret John chapter 8. You might recall that Jesus is a talking to teaching people, and these, uh, uh, these Pharisee leaders bring this woman to him and say, this woman has committed adultery. You matter, she's probably half-dressed. They caught her in the act. What are you going to do with her? The law says stone her. Jesus steps down, and he leans over. He starts writing in the sand with his finger, is what it says. And it says slowly that with the older, the older spiritual leaders and Pharisees leaving, and then the younger, they all walked away. And Jesus looked around at the woman and said, Do, uh, where, where are all your accusers? She said, they've gone, sir. He said, go and sin no more. He didn't accuse her. You know why? Because when he was writing in the sand, some commentators say he was writing the girlfriends of those particular Pharisees who were, who were oppressing this woman. Well, we can debate that translation. But it is true. Very often when you find moralism, you'll find a double life. And these folks had no different of a life, even in the Asia Minor Church. They were almost Christians. And when the pressure was on, they'd run to the double life rather than to Christ. Peter's saying, don't find yourself in this place. At the end, Jesus will say to even pretenders, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. So, here we go. The question is, how do we then respond to this reality of what's going on with people who are blind and even our own nearsightedness under pressure? Peter tells us why we struggle with that. In verse 9, he says, we've forgotten that that we are cleansed from former sins. This is the issue that he really gets to the heart of. The reason why we go to everything to manage our pain under pressure, and that would be true even of first century Christians, is We forget we're forgiven. We forget that Christ died on the cross for us. We are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God I love because we forget the gospel. So what is the response when you're under pressure immediately? That's an application right out of this first verse. Remember. Remember. You remember how God has worked In the entire story of the gospel, from Genesis to Revelation, how history is moving towards a destination, and he is working in powerful ways in our personal lives, and yes, even on a grand scale. He's moving history. You remember that Christ, his own son, entered into history to die and to bleed for sinners. And probably one of the best exercises you can do for yourself under pressure is remember what Christ has done for you personally. Every year I find myself in the spring thinking of how 31 years ago I was lost. I lived in a non-Christian family. We were lost. But God was kind enough to bring the gospel into our home and to lead us to himself. Every year that warms my heart. 
And then I start to think, well, what about when God saved me in that circumstance, in that thing, in my marriage, in my vocation, how He saved me here, how He saved me there. That's what you need to remember is how God saved and He will save in your life. Don't forget the cross. That Christ has saved you from your sins most of all. When was the last time you remembered, yeah, Jesus delivered me from that sin. Jesus has been working in my life in real ways. That brings us to verse 10. Um, Peter has said, don't go the way of spiritual myopia. Remember, therefore, go this way. In verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. The word here for be all the more diligent shows up. Whoops. We got a problem? Yep. Let's go to prayer, guys. Is it Mark? Okay. Let's pray for Mark. Father in heaven, we pray for you right We pray right now that in your grace you would uh, give Mark a relief. You would uh, help our care workers who are here to look into him. Uh, thank you for the grace that you give us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we're praying for the Holy Spirit to breathe some life into him as he wrestles with his health. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. How are we doing? We're good? Better? Okay. Okay. Howard, what should we do, bro? Okay. Thank you, sir. Okay, where was I? All right. Thanks be to God. Mark's okay. Verse 10, thank you. Oh, my goodness. Verse 10. All right. Um, verse 10. Ah, be all the more diligent. Well, when it comes to be all the more diligent, we've seen this uh, word also in verse 5 before, and it's talking about working hard for God. It's talking about actually doing our part in the sanctification process of growing. And, and that requires intentionality, as we talked about last week. That requires not being passive, that we actually actively pursue God. Now, here's the interesting thing. What he's saying in this text, after saying it twice, is this. We must do our best for Christ. Former President Jimmy Carter uh, once told a story of how he applied for submarine command in the Navy. And he applied under Admiral Hyman Rickover. For those of you who don't know, Rickover was a notoriously intimidating man. One day, President Carter invited Rick, uh, rather, was invited by Rickover to talk uh, for two hours about coming under his submarine command. 
Carter skillfully said he chose to talk about subjects that he knew a lot about so he could come across as being knowledgeable. But Rickover was a bright guy. And so Rickover started asking him more questions about the very same things Carter was talking about. And Carter realized I didn't know as much as I thought about the issues I was bringing up. Finally, Rickover started getting to the real heart and soul of President Carter. And he asked him, how'd you stand in your class at the Naval Academy? And Rickover, uh, rather Carter, swelled and said, sir, I graduated 59th in a class of 820. And as he swelled, he noticed that Rickover wasn't smiling and was not impressed. And then Rickover asked, did you do your best? Carter started to say, yes, sir. But then he realized the more more he could have done in the process of being at the Naval Academy. So he gulped and said, no, sir. And then Rickover turned his chair to look out the window and asked the haunting question, why not? Peter is driving home this working for Christ with a chain of Christian growth for a reason. He's calling us to give God our best. He wants us to consider that we, under pressure, will often give in to not doing our best for Christ. And, and you know, Peter's saying this for a reason. Remember Peter himself proclaimed, Jesus, I'll never deny you. I'll never leave you. Even all the losers around me will. All these other disciples right before Jesus was crucified. And yet when Jesus was going through the courtyards on his trial... Peter denied him three times. And then when Jesus came back from the dead and blessed Peter, forgiving him, giving him grace, he asked him three different times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Why would he do that? To match the three denials. To reinforce, are you really committed to me? That is a question we have as Christians that we have to live with. Am I giving my best for Christ in my life? And laboring for him. Now let me be clear. Peter isn't saying to Christians like you and me any more than Jesus said to him, Hey, in order for you to be in with me, you've got to get your act together. If you don't get your act together and try hard for me, you're out of here. He's not saying that. What he is saying is, I have loved you to death on the cross. I died for your sin. Live in that forgiveness. Receive that grace. Then go live a different way with your life by doing your best for me. Why? Because I did my best for you first. I gave all for you. This is what Peter is saying. But out of these questions of doing best for Christ, for working in the kingdom for Christ, there are always three questions that arise. And they even arise implicitly in our text. And here are the three questions. These are important ones. Hang with me on these. The first is this. What is the place of works in salvation? And second, is Peter saying we hold our own destiny in our hand when he says make your calling and election sure? And third, how do we gain assurance? How do we gain assurance knowing that we are living for Christ? First, let's deal with a big question. 
What is the place of our works in salvation? Well, here's the thing, guys. You must hold a two truths in tension at the same time. And the first is this, and it's relative to justification. Works are never the reason we are saved. Never. Our works are never the reason we are saved. It is entirely the work of Christ. The reason that we are justified by faith in Christ alone. But the second truth that you hold in tension is just as true. Works are the resulting evidence that we are saved. James 2 says, faith without, faith without works is dead, meaning real saved Christians exhibit the work of the Holy Spirit within them in the way they act and the life they live. This is important. You've got to hold these truths in justification and sanctification in tension to live the Christian life. Because if you imbalance one over the other, you end up with an imbalanced Christianity. Second controversial question. So when Peter says, make your calling and election sure, is he saying we hold our own destiny in our hand? After all, it sounds like we're supposed to do something to ensure we are saved. Well, remember these two words, and they are loaded words. Calling and election. Calling is what Jesus Christ does when through the power of the Spirit, He calls us and gives us life with the gospel, the power of God and salvation, and breathes life in our souls so we can believe. That's calling. That's what calling is all about. Election, ooh, another loaded word, is when God the Father from eternity before the foundations of the world, before the world was ever created, had a plan for everything. Everything. And He chose us in Christ on the basis not of our works, not even of our unbelief. I mean, our belief. Yikes, that's a, that's a controversial one. He chose us just because of something inside of Him. His grace. His love, His goodness. Calling and election are initiated by God in both cases. We don't initiate those. So we can say with Paul in Philippians 6, He who began a good work in you, in other words, uh, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. God started your salvation, He'll end it. Once saved, Always saved. So when when Peter is saying, make your calling and election sure, he is saying, confirm, show evidence that God has been working in you. And why is that important? Look at the second part of verse 10. And he says, for if you practice these, these qualities, you will never fall. That language of falling is the language of falling in sin, backsliding, for example. Even in some cases, Heresy. Apostasy is the fancy word. Why is he saying this? Why does it matter to us? Why does it matter to the people in the first century? Well, here's what was happening. A lot of the Christians under pressure were going to sexual immorality because of the pressure of the culture. And they found teachers to say, hey, it's okay, don't worry about it. People in the church were saying it. And as a result... They were running to sexual immorality, and a lot of the Christians were saying, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. 
The Bible says we're not supposed to go to that. And yet people are doing it under pressure. They were bewildered by the whole thing. Peter's saying, practice the golden chain as a part of your growth in Christ, and you will not fall. You'll build the rhythms of a heart connected to Christ and His grace in powerful ways. Listen, this passage is all about assurance. And so as a result, I'm going to tell you guys, and I was supposed to have a slide for this, so hang with me. Uh, There are grounds for how we know we're assured. And when you talk about, am I saved? We start to wonder, under the pressure, where am I with God? And what's God doing with me? Am I a Christian? You ever thought that? When things are going bad, you start to wonder, is this real, this Christianity? How can you know? Well, guys, i got some great news from the Scriptures on how we can know. And it's really in three points. First, you have a primary reason for assurance. It always starts with Christ. Christ has promised that if you trust in Him, you're saved, you're in. If you call Him Lord and Savior and seek His face and trust in Him alone... You're good with eternity and with God. You are a part of the family. That's what it says. And the second truth comes right out of that. Not only are you good with the family, you also, with an internal sense of the Spirit working within, as Romans 8 says, you have the testimony of the Holy Spirit saying these words. You are a child of God. You are a child of God. When things are hard, how much do you long to hear? You are a child of God. Now, I'll tell you, as you grow in Christ, what actually happens is you start to say with more and more confidence, I am a child of God. I am a child of God. But that brings us to the third reason. Things that can help feed our assurance in Christ, and that's this. Uh, the, the third evidence of assurance comes in how we carry out our lives in Christ with the fruit that we bear. What Peter's saying is if you work on the Christian chain of growth, you're going to bear fruit in your life. And that is a feedback loop to give you encouragement in your walk with Christ. When the pressure's on, you've got to go back to the gospel. I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, even through death. You've got to go to... I am a child of God because the Holy Spirit tells me you are a child of God. And you go to looking at your life. What kind of fruit is there coming, even in little bits? I know for the perfectionists who are here, it's going to be hard for you. You look at your life and you're like, I don't, I don't come up enough to the, to the whole standard. You know what you got to say to yourself? You sure don't. Not even close. But growth in Christ is a process where you slowly get bigger and bigger in your walk with the Lord. That leads us to the final concluding reason that Peter gives us in our text, and especially for beat-up, burnout, and bedraggled Christians wondering, is Christianity really worth it? I mean, think about it. These guys are being persecuted. They're under pain. It'd be like being a Christian in a Muslim country these days. The oppression would be unbelievable. And as a result, they're going, is Christianity really worth it? Should I bother? Because it sure is painful to follow Jesus. And Peter tells us in verse 11, 
the final reason why all this is great stuff. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, man, what great words. You know what he's talking about? The new heavens and the new earth. Heaven. Our destiny. Our home. The far country. Where we all are headed as we trust in Christ for our salvation. And he's really telling us we have incredible rewards waiting for us there. Now, somebody will say, wait a minute, rewards? I thought Christianity was you're saved by grace and you just get in and go to heaven. But if you read carefully in Scripture, there are also rewards that await you in heaven. Jesus himself said this to, uh, as an encouragement to those who are under pressure. The persecuted in Matthew 5. Listen to this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For great is your reward in heaven. Clearly, Christ has rewards in mind for us. Now, somebody might say, well, wait a minute. Does that mean we earn our salvation if we get rewards in heaven in some way? And the answer is no, you don't. The reason why we get confused with rewards is this. We don't understand how they work in heaven. When you understand rewards, it goes like this. In our world, rewards have a ceiling. In heaven, rewards have a floor. Let me explain. In this life, because of sin, we can only get so many rewards, and they are temporal rewards in this world. And you hit a glass ceiling, if you will, because sin keeps us from going further. But in heaven, everybody starts at a floor level. Everybody starts with an eternal inheritance beyond your wildest dreams. Everybody starts with a mansion that puts everything out at, uh, at local golf courses to shame. Everybody starts with an incredible new body in a new heavens and new earth. And everybody gets access seeing God face to face personally. Everybody does. Who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then blessedness has its degrees in heaven. For those who suffer, they get greater rewards. For those who don't get rewarded in this life and labor in ways for Christ in this life, they will be rewarded in greater ways. And somehow say, wait a minute, that doesn't seem fair. Well, here's what I'd tell you. If you're, you and I are in heaven one day together, fairness is not going to be something we're invoking. You know why? Because if we're really honest, none of us deserves to be in heaven. What's fair is that we go to... So you never invoke fairness in heaven because it's all by grace. But not only that, when you're in heaven by grace of Christ, there's no jealousy. For those who are at higher levels of blessedness, we actually, for those of us who are lower, we'll celebrate that because we celebrate glory and beauty and wonder and great things done for Christ. For those who are at the top of the heap, who get higher rewards, there is no pride. Because in heaven, the higher you go, the more humble you are. Indeed, at the very top of the heap is Jesus Christ himself. 
the ultimate king who is the humblest man who ever lived. You see, heaven awaits us with incredible blessings beyond our wildest dreams. And here's Peter saying, get farsighted about that land because that's where you're headed in the end. That's where you're going. Keep your eyes on the prize because you have a massive bank account and an incredible Lord worth giving everything for and worship for the rest of eternity waiting on you. The next time you feel like you're not going to make it, the pressure's on, the water's coming in all around, and you're feeling like uh, the walls are coming in, preach the gospel to yourself and do your best for Christ. Walk the narrow road of Christ's likeness because He saved you by His grace. And He has more grace beyond your wildest dreams awaiting. Let's pray. Father, we do lift up to You this time in our lives when we're facing pressure as the church due to the culture, in our families, with all kinds of issues that we could talk about together if we had the time. And yet I pray for everyone here, Lord, that in the pressure we would turn to You as our life. We would turn to You as our refuge. And we would find that forgetting leaves us in a dark place, but remembering and making every effort, being all the more diligent to pursue You is worth life itself. You are the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus. Lead us to that life, even now. In Christ alone we pray. Amen.